Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Hey, several years ago, Steve and I visited some of our missionaries in China, and one of the things we did there uh, was teach in an underground house church. We were set to teach on a Sunday night, and Craig kept getting these calls that the location would change, and the time would change. And then late in the afternoon, Craig got a final call, and he said, we're ready, come now. And I remember walking to the apartment complex where we were going and asking Craig, like, hey, man, um, why do things keep changing? And he said, oh, it's for security purposes. They have to keep moving houses and moving times. And I I said, so what happens if the police show up while we're gathered? And he said, oh, don't worry about it. You'll only go to jail for a few hours or a couple days, and then they'll kick you out of the country. He said, it's the Chinese believers they want. It's not you. I think it's one of the first times in my life where I thought about what it meant to count the cost of following Jesus. And as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, today we come to a section in the book where we have to pause and consider the cost of discipleship. And as a reminder, as we make our way through Mark's gospel, you'll see two main themes emerge. We've already seen this pop up again and again, and we'll continue to see it. If you're following on your notes, the first theme that we see is Mark wants to present a clear picture of Jesus. Every story, right? Mark wants people to know Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. He wants us to know, if you're following in your notes, that Jesus is the king who has come to establish his kingdom. Only two stories in the entire gospel of Mark aren't about Jesus. They're about John the Baptist. And today we come to one of those stories. Mark presents a clear picture of Jesus and he wants to encourage followers of Jesus to keep their faith because following Jesus is worth it. If you're following your notes, the second theme that Mark presents is a clear picture of faithful discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? He wants us to know the demands of following Jesus, the cost of following Jesus, and the reward of following Jesus. So to help us gain an imagination for the cost of discipleship as Mark builds on these themes, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark once again, chapter 6, verse 14 today. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible or a digital device, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can pull a Bible out of that and follow along in Mark, chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. So Steve used these words a couple weeks ago, and this is another example of what we're looking at today. It's called a Markin Sandwich. It's unique to the gospel of Mark. It's a literary device that Mark uses where he sandwiches a seemingly unrelated story in between the front and end of another story. And the story we're going to look at today is sandwiched between chapter 6, verses 6 to 13, where Jesus sends out the 12 
to take his message of the good news to local villages. Steve taught on that last week. We can finish that story. We'll just refresh ourselves. We read in chapter six, verse 12 and 13. It says, they, the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. That's the first loaf of bread or the first slice of bread. If you jump down to chapter six, verse 30, we then read, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Do you see the other slice of bread? That, that's the sandwich. That's the bookend, the bread of the sandwiches that Jesus sends out the 12 and they come back and report to him all that they saw in the advancement of the kingdom of God. So the question I wrestled with this week, the question that I wanted some resolution on, if you're following in your notes is, why in the world does Mark drop an unrelated story into chapter six, verse 14 to 29? Why is that in there? And to be honest with you, I like the bread of this sandwich. I just don't like what's in between the bread. And if we were not committed to teaching through books of the Bible here, this is not a story I would ever choose to teach. Because on its own and not part of the sandwich, it's awful. It's awful. But Mark has a purpose behind his writing and he's communicating to us something very important. So let's pick up beginning in verse 14. If you're following in your Bibles, it says, King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So it's thought that this is taking place during Jesus' first year of public ministry. But word has gotten out about who this Jesus is, this miracle worker from Nazareth. And he travels around teaching the good news of the kingdom and word has gotten to the royal palace. And the person who lives in the royal palace in Galilee at the time of Jesus is a man named Herod Antipas. Now, let's hit the pause button for a moment and have a bit of a history lesson. We read in verse 14 that he's called King Herod, but that is Mark using sarcasm. We'll come back to that in just a minute. That is the sarcasm of Mark. I knew I liked him. I knew I liked Mark. Herod Antipas is one of ton, 10 sons of Herod the Great, the one who killed all the baby boys at Christmas when Jesus was born, if you remember that story. So when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided between three sons and a daughter, and they were called tetrarchs, which means quarter. So Herod is called a tetrarch in the gospel of Matthew and Luke. And if you're following in your notes, Herod is the tetrarch ruling over Galilee. I want to put a picture on the screen for you of this region called Galilee. Herod rules over Galilee, and this is the region where Jesus does most of his ministry and lived most of his life. And this Herod, he longed to be a king. He was not a king. He was a tetrarch, and wanting to be a king would actually lead to his demise. 
Later in life, his wife Herodias convinced him to petition the Roman emperor to appoint him as king, and the emperor was so mad he banished him to Gaul. So, if you're one of the first readers of this book or first hearers of this book, every time Mark uses the word king, you kind of chuckle because he's not a king. He's a tetrarch. And remember, Mark is portraying Jesus as the one true king who's come to usher in his kingdom and he's using some sarcasm towards Herod here. So word about Jesus is, reach the royal palace. There's a lot of chatter about who he is. Some say Elijah, some say another prophet from the Old Testament. But Herod says, that's John, whom I beheaded, and he's been raised from the dead. We need to know who Herod is talking about. It's John the Baptist, or sometimes he's called John the Baptizer. John was a special person. There was a special call on John's life from the time he was in his mother's womb. And if you're following in your notes, John was a messenger calling people to repentance in preparing the way for the Messiah. He was calling people to repentance. It just means to turn from your sin. Turn from your sin and turn to the Messiah. He was preparing the way. John lived in the wilderness out by the Jordan River. And one of my favorite scenes is when the religious establishment sends the CIA out to question John. And they ask him, who are you? And we see John say in John chapter one, verse 23, and real quick, the gospel of John is not to be confused with John the Baptist. John the gospel was written by the disciple named John. John the Baptist is a different person. Confusing, I know. But John the disciple is describing John the Baptist in his gospel. And this is what John says in the wilderness. I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And then if you skip down to John chapter one, verse 21, 29, one of my favorite verses, would you read this with me in the first gray box or on your notes? This is John pointing to Jesus. His whole life pointed to Jesus. He said, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was a messenger calling people to repent and preparing the way for Jesus. And then if you look back at verse 14, Herod has heard about this Jesus and he's contemplating how can this be John the Baptist raised from the dead? You still with me? All right. Now we get the backstory of Herod murdering John the Baptist. And I've got to tell you, this is seriously like one of the most sordid soap operas I could ever imagine. It's like a rated R days of our lives or like housewives of New Jersey. So picking up in verse 17, it says, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay. If you had a rough week of parenting, If you had a rough patch in your marriage this week, if there was a fight on the way to church, I am about to make you feel better about yourself and your family because this is a messed up, dysfunctional family. I tried to put together a family tree for you. It's like the Cliss Notes. If you really want to know the extent,
extent of the dysfunction, just go Google Herod Anipus this afternoon. So slide one of the family tree. Herod the Great had 10 sons. Three of those were named Aristobulus, Philip, and Herod Antipas. That's our guy in the story. Aristobulus was married to Bernice, and they had a daughter named Herodias. Herodias married her uncle Philip, and they had a daughter named Salome. We'll get to her in just a minute. But when Herod Antipas met his niece and sister-in-law, he divorced his wife and persuaded Herodias to leave his brother Philip and marry him. That'd be some interesting uh, holiday dinners. And it's into this messed up, unlawful marriage that John says enough is enough. This was unallowable under Jewish law and John let him have it. He called them on their stuff. If you're following in your notes, so John is in prison for publicly speaking up for his faith. And he's standing against Antipas's adulterous marriage to his brother's wife. Most likely Herodias is behind their arrest. She's the power behind the crown anyway. We're told in verse 19, if you're following along, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protecting him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So Herodias, Herod's wife, wanted John dead, but Herod didn't have really any reason to kill him because he didn't think he was a bad guy or had done anything wrong. And it says he liked to listen to John. But at the same time, John puzzled him. And I, this, is, this is where language is so important and so interesting. Puzzled is not the best translation of the word used here. The Greek word is apareo, which means, if you're following in your notes, to be paralyzed with indecision. It's to be paralyzed with indecision or to waver at a crossroads, not knowing whether I should go this way or that way. And it can refer to a person who wants to get on the road, but is afraid to get on the road. And that's where Herod is. He is divided. When it said that Herod liked to listen to John, just know this, John was talking all about Jesus. So Herod is enjoying listening to these stories of the Messiah, of Jesus, and he is at a crossroads. Remember, one of Mark's themes is clearly presenting what it looks like to follow, and you have John who's given up everything and dedicated his life to point people to Jesus. And you have Herod who's listened to all that John has said about Jesus. And if you're following in your notes for Herod, the decision to follow Jesus costs too much. It costs too much. For Herod to accept the message John taught about Jesus would mean he would have to give up everything. And that cost was too great. He might lose his marriage. He certainly wouldn't be able to be the Tetrarch of Galilee anymore. He'd lose his wealth. He'd lose his power. He would lose his friends. He'd be ridiculed by people of power. He would lose his kingdom if he decided to follow the king whose kingdom was not of this world. And that just cost too much. So let's see how this plays out. Verse 21, Herod's at a crossroads, wants to get on the road, and he doesn't. Verse 21, finally the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So remember, I mentioned Herod's, Herodias' daughter Salome earlier, right? She's Herod's stepdaughter, and she's now dancing to please the king and his drunk friends. The word here is the same word used in chapter five for little girl. She's probably about 12 years old. It's messed up. This family is messed up. But there's something bigger going on here than just all of the dancing and everything else. This is the point where Herod moves from indecision to decision. And I appreciate what Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says about this verse. You can see on the screen. He says, verse 21 is where Herodias's window of opportunity opened and Herod's closed forever. Herod had his window of opportunity and he missed it. He was listening to John every day. He had a chance to change his life and he was processing, 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 but he never made a decision. And we know Herod never made a decision because when you get to the end of the gospel of Mark and the other gospels record this as well, Jesus goes before this same Herod Antipas and Herod mocks Jesus. No spiritual interest, no openness to Jesus. He missed his chance. And I feel convicted to say this today. I feel like God wanted me to say this. If you sense God is stirring something in your life, if you have been coming here and listening gladly, and you've been interested in what you've heard, don't miss this opportunity. God is asking all of us to lay down our little kingdoms to join his kingdom, which is the only way to find true life now and forever. Don't miss an opportunity to follow Jesus. Because I don't know how many more opportunities will all be given. Each breath is a gift from the Lord. This is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life and has eternal consequences. So if you're here and you're at a crossroads and you're wavering and you want to get on the road and you haven't, do it today. Do it today. Make the decision to follow Jesus. And if you have questions, I love that you have questions. We'd love to meet you where you are and talk with you through those questions. If you or someone you know have major questions, we actually have a group starting next week called Alpha where you can ask those questions. Who's God? Who's Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? What is faith? Why do people suffer? If that's you and you have questions and you need them answered, this is a safe place for you. You can text the word alpha to 217-546-4818. We'd love to talk with you about those questions, but let today be a day where you take a step. Get on the road. So continuing in verse 22, it goes from bad to worse. We read, the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother Herodias, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So the word distressed here is interesting. The only other place it's used in the New Testament is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And I think in this moment, Herod's conscience is seared. If you're following your notes, he is distressed. He has a what have I done moment. He has a what have I done moment. Have you ever had one of those? I remember uh, when one of our boys was a baby and I brought them into the office and either Sue or Tammy or somebody was holding them for a couple minutes. And I remember uh, driving off and getting a phone call from one of them saying, hey, Brian, did you forget anything at the church? I said, no, I didn't forget anything. They said, no, did you forget anything at the church? I said, no, I didn't forget anything. They said, did you forget your baby? And it's like slow motion, right? What have I done? I forgot my baby at the church. Herod's having one of these, what have I done moments. Back to the story very quickly there. Uh, Herod could have acted on this moment. He's the king, right? He could have said, I don't want to do that. I'm sorry, I can't do that. But he feared what others would think. He feared the loss of faith before powerful men. He had built his life and his identity on position and power. And that was the most important thing to him. Another opportunity to change his life. And he missed it. Now we read how he missed it in verse 27. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, And brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. What an awful story. And then we come to the other side of the sandwich in verse 30. And it says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So back to the original question, right? Why in the world does Mark drop the story of John the Baptist's death in between the story of Jesus, Jesus' followers being sent out to show and tell the gospel and returning to report all they had done and taught. And why does Mark spend so much time on this story? Mark's the shortest gospel. He tells stories quick, but he spends 15 verses on this. Why is that? I think it can be answered in three words. And if you're following in your notes, the three words are count the cost. The crowds are following Jesus. They love him for what, they can, what he can do for them. He's the talk of the town. He's the miracle worker. And in chapter six, we just see this progression that Mark slows things down. And he says, count the cost. This is so important. If you're following in your notes throughout chapter six, we see a progression of faithfulness to mission and rejection by the world, right? Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. The disciples were to be prepared to shake the dust off their feet because they would be rejected. And now the death of John is the ultimate rejection of the message of Jesus. Faithfulness to mission may lead to rejection by the world. And as I studied, I felt like the Lord wanted me to talk about three different audiences and how this idea of counting the cost would have affected them. The first audience, if you're following in your notes, it's the original hearers. It's original hearers. Listen, we have to understand what it meant to the original hearers because the, 
the Bible can't mean something to us that it didn't first mean to them. It's a really good practice when you're reading the Bible. We don't impose our culture on the Bible's culture. It can't mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. The story foreshadows the suffering that is to come of God's messengers because what happened to John will happen to Jesus and happen to the disciples. 10 out of the 12 disciples were killed for their faith. And it reveals what could happen to anyone who preaches the same message of Jesus and repentance in a hostile world. Remember, Mark was writing to believers in the Roman Empire. They were facing increasing hostility from the emperor as they followed Jesus. And he wanted to encourage these followers to persevere, even though people would reject the message. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus made a promise to his followers. I think it's my least favorite promise in the Bible. You can see it on the screen. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Here's the promise. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen, Jesus did not promise health. He did not promise wealth. He did not promise prosperity. He did not promise ease. He did not promise comfort. For the early believers in the Roman Empire, Jesus was the treasure. When you come to Jesus, You got Jesus, and he was better than anything else this life has to offer. The message to the original hearers was count the cost and take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. The persecution of Christians, however, did not end in the first and second, the first century. And the second audience that God brought to my mind as I studied was persecuted Christians today. In fact, there are more persecuted Christians at this time in history than at any point in the history of the world. In just the last year, I'll put some statistics on the screen for you. Over 360 million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Next slide. 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith just Last year, 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And just to show you the global nature of God's kingdom, one in seven Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. The story that we read today is not just a story for these brothers and sisters, it's a reality. I listened to a podcast this week about followers of Jesus in Iran, and they were talking to one of the church leaders for the entire country about the day he became a follower of Jesus. And he said something that struck me. He said, when they presented the good news of Jesus to me, persecution was part of the message. He said they shared this verse, 1 Peter Chapter four, verses 12 and 13 with him on the day he made the decision to follow Jesus. Would you read this with me in the second gray boxer on the screen? It says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The the message this story tells to the persecuted Christians around the world, if you're following your notes, is count the cost and rejoice. 
Count the cost and rejoice. The apostle Paul would speak to this in Philippians chapter one, verse 29. He says, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. We all believe that faith is a gift that God gives us. It's harder to believe that suffering is a gift that he gives us as well. And our persecuted brothers and sisters don't like it. They don't, they don't necessarily ask for it, but they rejoice because they are participating in the suffering of Christ. And they long for that day when Jesus returns and makes everything right. Count the cost and rejoice. The third audience is us. And if we're honest, we don't have to count the cost of following Jesus very often. We're not persecuted for our faith in the same way others around the world are. If we say we're followers of Jesus, we might be looked at as stupid, naive, uneducated, not using our minds, homophobic, whatever other adjectives to describe us. We might be looked at that way. There's a stigma attached to following Jesus, but we are not thrown in jail or killed. Something interesting happens in verse 30 on the second piece of bread of the sandwich. When the disciples report back, he sends them out as the 12. When they report back, you see a word used for the first time in the gospel of Mark. It's the word apostles, right? They're sent out as the 12. And upon their return, they're referred to as apostles, which means sent ones. An apostle is a messenger commissioned to carry out the instructions of the commissioning agent. We've said this a lot lately. Steve said it last Sunday, and we'll keep banging this drum. We are sent ones. We're missionaries. Wherever God has placed us, you are a sent person if you're a follower of Jesus. You live in a neighborhood. You go to a school. You go to a workplace that I can't reach. No matter how many ministries we offer as a church, we can't reach the people you can reach. You can reach people who don't yet follow Jesus. And that's why we always need to remember, if you're following your notes, that we are sent ones on mission with Jesus. And the message for us who don't face this type of persecution yet, if you're following your notes, is to pray for boldness and courage. Pray for boldness and courage. There's a fantastic story in the book of Acts chapter four where Peter and John had just gotten out of jail for talking about Jesus in the public square. The followers of Jesus could have done anything when they were reunited. They could have done anything, but they decided to pray and they could have prayed for anything. They could have prayed for anything, but this is what they prayed in Acts chapter four, Verses 29 to 31, they said, And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. And listen, if we're, if we see ourselves as sent ones on mission with Jesus and we pray for boldness and courage, I believe there will be opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. 
And it probably won't be in this magnificent way where fireworks go off. It's usually in the small moments in our ordinary day lives when we rub shoulders with somebody that God puts in our path that day, whether it's at the park, whether it's at a kid's sporting event, whether it's at the store. But if we're not looking for opportunities, we miss them. I miss them all the time. I miss them all the time. There were two guys doing some work on our house a number of months ago. One guy was the uncle and the other guy was his younger nephew, probably in his 20s. And as they finished their work, he said this to me. He said, hey, thanks for treating us with kindness. You'd be surprised how many people don't. Listen, all we did was give them a few bottles of water and thank them for what they did. Let me just say this. I think one of the first steps of evangelism in our angry culture today is just be kind. Can we just be kind to people? Can we see them as created in the image of God deserving of respect? We can just be kind to people. And this guy says, thanks for treating us with kindness. And I'm at this crossroads and I don't know if you've ever been there and you're like, am I gonna do it? Am I gonna do it? Am I gonna say it? Am I gonna say Jesus? Am I gonna say his name? What if I say his name? A thousand thoughts. And he says, thanks for your kindness. And I said, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I believe if following Jesus is important to us, then we wanna live the way of Jesus in our lives. And so thanks for being here. And do you know what his response was? He said, dude, that's awesome. I knew it. (laughs) I didn't expect that response. We ended up talking about Jesus for the next 30 minutes. And that dude's a believer. He goes to Westside. He's an awesome guy, but his nephew's not a believer. And we talked about Jesus for 30 minutes in front of that young kid. And I don't know if he's a believer yet, but seeds were sown that day. And I miss it way more than I get it right. But if we are praying for boldness, see ourselves as sent people, there's opportunities. There are opportunities. And I want more of those in my life. And I want more of those for our church because I really believe that's how the kingdom advances today. It's not through ministries and programs as important as those are. It is through us seeing ourselves as sent people on mission with Jesus. So we want to pray this morning. In the Acts of the Apostles, they prayed for boldness and courage and they saw a move of the Holy Spirit. And we want to practice that. We want to practice praying because we believe prayer changes things. It changes us first and it changes situations. And I also just want to say, I I don't feel like I'm great at prayer. Um, I struggle with it probably more than any other spiritual discipline, but I also know the only way to learn how to pray is by praying. So we just step into this practice together, even if you don't feel like you're great at it. What I'm gonna do is lead us in a couple different movements of things to pray for. And then you'll have time to silently pray for those. So I wanna invite you to either take your message notes back out. Sorry, I didn't say that earlier or keep them on your lap. And I want you to turn them over. I listed the top 15 countries in the world where Christians face persecution. And for the next minute, I just wanna invite you to pray for those countries by name. Pray that the persecution would stop. And I also wanna invite you to pray for our brothers and sisters in those countries that they would be encouraged 
and that they would have boldness and courage to continue in their faith. Next, I want to invite you to ask the Lord to bring to mind those in your life who don't yet follow Jesus. Friends, family, co-workers, who are the ones in your life that you care for, you love, you long for them to know Jesus. Pray for them by name, bring their faces to mind. with those names fresh in your mind, those faces that you can see. This is the risky prayer. But I wanna invite you to pray that God would give you opportunities to share the good news and that you would have boldness and courage to do it. Would you have boldness and courage to take the risk if given the opportunity, just pray for that.
Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.